Thank you very much for coming to our event at the LSE Festival today. My name is Ilka Gleitz, and I'm an assistant professor at the Department of Psychological and Behavioral Science here at the LSE, and I will share today's event. I'm very happy for you all to be here on a Saturday afternoon or rather lunchtime, and I would like to thank you, and in particular our panelists, for making the way to the LSE. This event is co-organized by uh, Professor Lucinda Platt from the Department of Social Policy and myself and some of my colleagues that I will name later. And as you know, the event forms part of the LSE Festival New World Disorder, which took place from Monday the 25th of February to today as a part of a whole year of activities at LSE exploring how social science can tackle global issues. In the next hour or so, we are talking about what does it mean to be British and who defines it. Many of current political and societal events have triggered questions around Britishness and what it means to be British. When we think back to many of the political stories in the last month, we see that they are concerned with British identity. Can a young woman who traveled to Syria to support Daesh still be British? Or is that incompatible with British values and what Britain stands for, which makes it impossible for her to remain British? Sahid Javid, the Home Secretary, revoked Shamia Begum's um, citizenship, which stirred a discussion on what Britishness means and who can be British. Another important discussion in the last year was around the so-called Windrush scandal. Here, many British citizens were wrongly detained, denied legal rights, threatened with deportation, and in around 63 cases, wrongly, were wrongly deported from the UK by the Home Office. Many of those affected had been born British citizens and had arrived in the UK before 1973, particularly from Caribbean countries. Many never questioned the fact that they were British, having lived in this country for decades and were caught by surprise when they got to know that the government did not regard them as British citizens any longer. Both examples show that being British is easily not easily defined and not always determined by your passport or your feeling of Britishness, uh, being a British citizen. Identity means the fact of being who and what a person is or a group is. Implicitly, we are all aware of what our identities might be. For me, it's being an academic, a woman, a German, and potentially British. But when asked directly, we often do not know how to answer and how to explain our identity. So being British, is this about a passport and citizenship, about our cultural heritage, shared values we endorse, things we do, about specific religion or shared history? Is being British determined by the color of our skins or the gods we worship or not? Is it about loving the queen, eating fish and chips, and neatly queuing at a bus stop? Is it about being able to vote or maybe not vote? These are some of the questions we'd like to discuss with all of you as the audience and our panel today. We would like to start the discussion with a few statements that I will show you in a few minutes here, and you, the audience, should answer and rate these statements. We handed out clickers that you have in front of you, and you can rate each question with pressing one of the letters A, B, and for some questions you might also use C, D, and E. After every vote, the answers will appear on the screen. We will start with six statements, and then we will have two of our panelists to respond and expand on these statements for about five minutes each. We will have a few more statements, um, which will be commented on by the other two panelists, again for about five minutes each. Afterwards, I will invite the full panel to discuss our key questions before I open up the discussions to you, the audience. 
Before we start, please make sure that your phones are on silent to avoid disrupting the event, but please do Twitter and use the hashtag uh, LSE Festival or hashtag New World Disorder. Please note that the event will be recorded and we hope that a postcard of, po podcast of the event will be made available online. But before we start with our statements, let me welcome and introduce our four panelists. First, I'm very happy to introduce Diane Abbott. Diane is a member of parliament for Hackney North and Stoke Newton since 1987 and was the country's first black female MP. She's a member of the Labour Party and since 2016, the Shadow Home Secretary. Diane was born in London to parents of Jamaica, uh, from Jamaica. She attended Newham College in Cambridge and studied history. Diane's many achievements are too numerous to list here, but I would like to mention that she's the founder of the London Schools and the Black Child Initiative, which aims to rise black education achievement levels for, amongst black students. I also welcome Eric Kaufmann. Eric is a professor of politics at Birkbeck College, University of London, and the director of the Master Programme in Nationalism and Ethnic Conflict. Eric was born in Hong Kong and raised in Vancouver, Canada, and is of mixed heritage, including Chinese, Latino, and European, as well as being of Jewish and Catholic background. <laughs> That's what Wikipedia <laughs> He received a BA from the University of Western Ontario and an MA and PhD from LSE, so welcome back. Eric is widely pu a widely published researcher who tackles big questions around religion, nationalism, conflict, and ethnicity. His latest book is called White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities, in which he argues that we need to talk about white identity and what it means to be white British. Our third guest is Sunda Kadwala, who is the director of British Future. He has previously worked as a journalist and was general secretary of the Fabian Society from 2003 to 11. Before that, he was a lead writer and internet editor at The Observer, a research director of the Foreign Policy Center, and commissioning editor for politics and economics at Macmillan um, Publishing. He was born in Doncaster, Yorkshire, to parents who came to Britain from India and Ireland. As a director of British Future, Sundar is concerned with what, with what Britain will look like in the future, and in his work focuses on four main topics for public debate, identity and integration, migration and opportunity. Lastly, but of course, um, no, well, anyways, I wanted to make a joke. I don't make a joke. <laughs> but I'm very happy <laughs> to welcome Dr. Alita Nandi. She's a research fellow at the Institute of Social and Economic Research at the University of Essex. Alita holds degrees from the University of Calcutta and Jawaharlal Nehru University and Ohio State University and has worked as a researcher at Ohio State University and the University of Essex. Her research primarily focuses on areas of ethnic, ethnicity and gender, specifically investigating differences in subjective well-being, so life satisfaction and mental health, as well as economic well-being, income and wages. In addition, she is the trainer and user support lead for Understanding Societies, a UK household longitudinal study that captures life in the UK in the 21st century. As you all see, we have an excellent set of speakers, and I thank you for joining us for this debate today. I will now ask you, the audience, and also the speakers, to read and rate our first statement. Then I will ask Eric and Diane to respond to some of the statements and to explain to all of us what they think British identity is and who defines it. So we will go on and vote. Here's our first question. 
polling is open. I identify with being British. That's a very nice bimodal relationship. International samples, I think. Okay, I identify with being being British. A is disagree. B is slightly disagree. C, neither disagree nor agree. D, slightly agree. And E is agree. The answers will be easier. You only have two options. So this is our final result. We have a nice bimodal relationship. So we have about 31% disagreeing, not feeling British at all, and about 36% people agreeing, and then a few people in between. All right, let's move on to the next one. You have only two options. You can't be British, you cannot be British unless you were born here. Agree or disagree? Yeah, we have a very strong majority here. 8, 10, 13, isn't it? Is that what it is? Yeah. Okay. Or, or, I mean, it's, it's 10 to 13 for uh, minorities born here are less British. Okay, 84% disagree. So you 10. can be British even if you're not born here. That's nice. You have to be proud of this country to be British. <laughs> A, disagree. B, agree. Some of the numbers do not add up. <laughs> 58.7. Maybe some of you don't know, so it's fine. All right, 60% at least. That is not 100, but anyway. Uh, so you could be British and not be proud. Or they disagree. Great Britain is a country greater than the sum of its past, diverse as they may be. A, disagree. B, agree. That would be a yes. This lot might not go for that. They like that. They're 13 to 18. There's a lot of fences. There's a country the best parts. I wonder how many disagree. Oh, there's some disagree there. Got a bit of civic nationalism in the room. That's done better than I would have. Again, it's really done up at up Better than I would have thought. It's a binary question, yeah. and you've got to choose one. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of noise in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah, is I mean, what do you do with so you, About 50% say agree, so you, yeah. Great Britain <laughs> is the country greater than the sum of its part, yeah. diverse as they may be. The next question, wait, is... If your skin is not white, you cannot be English, but you can be British. A, disagree. B, agree. Disagree with this. We're actually winning. Well, yeah, but the question... Yeah, yeah. What's that? I think nobody's answering this. But this is yeah. trying to get your prejudice. Oh, look, nobody's this is actually... Your, this is your prejudice norm one. against how you believe it is conceived by people. This sort of yeah, yeah, quite conflicted could, on this. You could actually see coming at this from a, from a sort of radical left. Yeah. Or a far right. Yeah, but it's ethnically defined, but it shouldn't be. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You know, or, or it will stay ethnically defined, and if you want it, you're hoping something you'll never get. Yeah, 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 that's right, that's right. So I mean, I've had this conversation on sort of BBC London and Asian Network where people phone in and say, you're like, literally, what is the answer? Right? <laughs> and you're like, well, okay. actually, the answer is sort of like, this depends how you feel. If you're born here, do you think maybe, some more conversations, so keep people, that in mind for later. Being British means being able to express yourself without being judged. A agree, uh, A disagree, B agree. Public's favourite um, British value is respect for the freedom of speech of people when you disagree with them. That is the winning. That is the oh, winning. Is that? Yeah, the respect for the freedom of speech of people you disagree with yes. is the winning. The numbers the are winning, so weird. Let's <laughs> say which is it? You know, diversity. I don't know why. Oh, okay, that, yeah. that one comes out as the most important one. It's quite good because actually, if you take that one seriously, it's got boundaries. You can get most of the okay. other ones out of yeah, out yeah. of that one. The numbers yeah. getting stranger and stranger, but I think that most people disagree. Most people and this is the last one before I will ask question. Eric to comment. 
Um, people in this country value tolerance and getting along together. To demand something else is surely very un-British. A, disagree. B, agree. It's interesting people are disagreeing with that here oh, yeah, as a binary. Yeah. Like, what are you, why is, why is your disagreement? Okay, okay. so this seems to be so far <laughs> the one where people have very, or slightly more different uh, ideas about. And before we continue with our statements, I have to... I would like to uh, ask Eric first, and then Diane. Okay. All right. So, so an interesting range of questions there, and a range of answers. And I, you know, I, I'm sort of one of these people who's not a big fan of things like tests or um, officially sanctioned definitions of the nation, for example. Um, and, I mean, it's interesting that Englishness question, but it is just interesting to note that on the census, on the longitudinal census, you can see that about 30% of Sikhs uh, in England identify as English rather than British, and 20, just over 20% of Bangladeshis and Pakistanis, so it's clearly not restricted to the white British population, and it's very much skewed towards younger UK-born. Um, and that, I guess that's kind of a nice lead-in to the way I kind of frame these issues, which is in terms of nationalism studies, which has a long and venerable history here at the LSE, uh, going back to figures like Ernest Gellner and, and Anthony Smith, um, one, the, the traditional view of how national identity is formed is, is from the top down, from the state, creating a myth of the nation, the classic one being the French one, teaching it in the schools, and that becomes the hymn sheet uh, that everybody has to learn, and that's the national identity. And I think that's, first of all, not true to the way national identity operates, and certainly not uh, today. I'm very much more of the view that it emerges from the bottom up. Uh, people are having conversations. They're watching television. They're going to sports events, communicating with each other. So out of that kind of chaos, in a way, emerges a sort of uh, a sense of what it means to be British but the point about that is it varies from person to person. The picture in their heads about what Britishness is is going to vary, and it will vary by region, by whether you live in Scotland or England, by ethnic group to some degree. Um, and so that sort of my view is to sort of tolerate a wide variety of imaginations of Britishness and not to sort of set down a hymn sheet to have a menu, if you like, of options. So for, and, and actually, I think values, British values, for example, are often very no, are not very central to most people's perceptions or, or the way they think about national identity. These values tend to be the same in pretty much every country, um, you know, liberty, tolerance, enterprise, etc. Um, fairly banal for most people, still useful to have. I don't think the government, therefore, is going to have a huge effect. It'll have some effect in shaping national identity. Identity, but rather, I'd, I would like to see uh, a toleration of a range of, of different conceptions. And so whether we're talking about the cricket test or whether we're talking about having to uh, approve a statement such as Britain's defined by its diversity, my view is, well, actually, neither of those things is really appropriate because some people will, will identify to Britain through its cricket team and some will identify through its diversity. But equally, others might identify through many generations on the land, the, the green and pleasant land of England, etc. And that's fine, too, uh, as long as you don't say this is the only way to be British. It's one, it's one way to be British. So I'm very much in favor of many ways to be British, um, diverse ways to celebrate what we have in common. So that's different uh, from either the sort of celebration of diversity, we must all be on this page, all celebrating diversity, or 
No, we've all got to celebrate what we have in common, which is given by these five British values. I, you know, I think that's a mistake as well. I think you have to allow for that diverse expression of many different forms of, of identity. So you have to get to the content, really, uh, the symbols that people are attached to and allow for a, a range of difference. And I think that's kind of the, the way I would think of, of Britishness. And so when it comes to these questions, I would tend to shy away from saying you must be this or must be that to be British. Um, so that's roughly where I'd leave it. I can go into more detail on any of these things. <laughs> Great. No, but you're perfect in time. Okay. Um, so then I would like to ask Diane. What have I got? Yeah, of course you can. I always like to stand up when I speak. I worry if I'm sitting down, people won't hear me. Um, I was very interested to come to this event because one of the things that's not widely understood is how passionately British the earliest post-war generation of Caribbean migrants were. In fact, I know of no group who feel as strongly about being British as that particular generation, which is what made the Windrush and how they were treated, I think, exceptionally cruel. I'll say a little bit more about post-war migration, but we heard at the beginning about the case of Shamima, Shamima Begum, the Bethel Green schoolgirl, who has had her nationality stripped away and is essentially been left in a field in Syria with her two-week-old baby. And what the Begum case shows us is that as far certainly as this Conservative government is concerned, your nationality is conditional. I mean, what the Begum case shows is the distinction the state has between the good migrant and the bad migrant. I mean, my view is that Sajid Javid, the Home Secretary, knows perfectly well that is, she has no legal basis to strip away her nationality. His claim is that she's entitled to Bangladeshi nationality. In fact, the Home Office lost two cases on that grounds last year, tried to take away people's nationality because they were of Bangladeshi descent and they were turned over in the High Court. And I expect he'll be turned over on this as well. But he's riding the wave of public sentiment. And what public sentiment is partly saying is your nationality is conditional. So I spoke a little bit about post-war migration. And I do think, I mean, everyone there is an academic, and so they're talking about this academically. This is my life. It's my life. It's my son's life. It was my parents' life. And I do think to understand notions of what is Britishness and how do you define British, you have to have a little bit, know a little bit about the historical context. And you always should remember, because sometimes people talk about black and brown people in Britishness as if we're very recent to this country. But in fact, there have been black people in this country since Tudor times, all the way through Tudor times and the 18th century. But then post-war, you saw quite large numbers of black and brown people coming. And some of them were students. Some of them went to the LSE. The, the one-time uh, Prime Minister of Jamaica came to the LSE, in fact. 
Some of them were students, some of them were economic migrants, like my parents, who came here when you literally had freedom of movement between what had been the empire and was now the Commonwealth. Um, and the reason I make the point about the immediate post-war migration it was that it was a post colonial migration largely. In that period of the 50s and 60s, most of these territories became independent. But that colonial experience was a really unifying factor in that era. And in a way, I think we miss that unifying factor now in 2019. So you had two streams of migrants coming in after the war, and in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s, we had a lot of forward progress in terms of people who were British but also black and brown. Um, you had a series of race relations acts, you started to see black and brown people in the professions, you started to see black and brown people as it were more accepted in society. You started to see a society more conscious of racism and the obverse, that you could be black or brown and British. Um, you even, um, in the 1980s, for the very first time got four black MPs elected. But I think what we've seen since then has been a pushback. And a lot of the talk you hear about Englishness and the British and how they're the real victims is a pushback against the advances that we were able to make in the 60s and the 70s and the early 80s. So, in conclusion, I would say this. Of course you can be British if your skin is not white. It has been so since the Tudor era, but it is still a default position to challenge your Britishness if your skin is not white in too many areas of the British state and the hostile environment where people who came here with British paperwork and had always considered themselves British were treated as illegal aliens, the hostile environment exemplified what can happen when the state refuses to accept you can be both British and black. So it's an important question. It actually reflects on the way a lot of the state functions. Glad to be here to discuss it. As I say, to me, it's not theory, it's my life. Thank you. Thank you very much. Before we delve into the discussions amongst all of us, we have a few more statements. I also want to say that these statements are all picked because they were part of news reports or surveys, so it's not they, we, made, we did not make them up. This is what is out there in the world um, in terms of what people think might or might not be British. Um, the next one is, extremists are threatening the British way of life and British value and may succeed in destroying both. Next question is, all children are required to be taught British values in school. So you, you guys have to comment on this, these questions. No, they are required. Do you, is, it a, yeah, is this the case or not? That's 87.13 because I've pulled up. True or false? It's a good question, but that's the factual. Yeah, but as a should question, 87% of people think they should. And then you're like, do you know what, what it's like 40 Okay. Or... <coughs> right. <laughs> the split. I can tell you the, the right answer is, they, the yes, they are. And even in kindergarten and nurseries, right. they have to be taught British values. 
The next one is British values must be active, actively promoted. Do you A, a disagree or B, agree? This is actually a comment by Amanda Spielman, who's the head of Ofsted. Brackets, but the inclusive And version. so she thinks British values must be actively promoted. That's why we have to teach them at school. Okay, this is more complicated. And this is very difficult conversation. And this refers, goes back to what Eric earlier said. Which of the following ethnic groups was most likely to consider its national identity as British in the 2011 census? A, white UK, so British, English, or Scottish. B, white other. C, mixed ethnicity. D, India, Indians. E, Pakistani. F, black African. And G, black Caribbean. So which of these groups thought about themselves as yeah, no, a national identity yeah. as British? Defined by identifying with a religious... Yes. So, so what would it be a drop to? It's probably about... Okay. Low 60s, probably. Yeah, you're right. I think yeah. most of you are wrong. Yeah. Oh, 2001. The right answer is E, Pakistani. So Pakistanis right. are most Pakistan. likely to think about themselves as British or say their national identity is British. Okay, and the last one is, what was the most common national identity in the 2011 census? A, British only, B, British and English, and C, English only. Like a quiz, man. 52% English only. Okay, again, uh, most of you were wrong. <laughs> uh, the real answer is C. So most, the most common the methodology is obviously was a problem. English only. Yeah, the okay, so yeah, yeah, like, uh, it's usually about 50-50 when. This is it for our vote. Now I would like to ask Sula for five minutes, yeah. and then Alita to follow. Thanks, thanks, thanks very much. Uh, I think I think this very interesting question: who defines it? Um, uh, being British, I think I think Diane Abbott's absolutely right. Well, you know, we can talk about it, but we also define it by living it and then talking about the ways in which we've lived and experienced national identity. And that's why I think national identity has changed over the decades, over the generations, and will change again, deciding on what we decide to do about it. So I was, I was born British in a, in a hospital in Doncaster in the, you know, an April day in the mid-1970s. And, you know, 30 years earlier, my dad had been born uh, 4,000 miles away in Gujarat, India, um, but because that was 1944, he'd been born British too, and he became a citizen of the Indian Republic, um, you know, around his fourth birthday, and he's British again now because he came over here and took up uh, British citizenship. But he, he came over here uh, in his 20s in 1968, and it was the week after Enoch Powell had made his infamous Rivers of Blood speech. So Enoch Powell obviously didn't get his publicity right in Gujarat, India, uh, because my dad got the plane anyway. And that, <laughs> that, that, that speech says something very important about who we are and who we can be. Because there's a, the most important part of that speech is when Enoch Powell says, sometimes people say the children of immigrants being born here is the solution. It's not the solution. It's the complete catastrophic disaster. What will happen? The, the funeral pie he's talking about in that speech, the end of Britain, he's basically saying that the fact that Diane Abbott has been born here, or if Sunda Katwala is born here, will all be finished because they'll be British in law, but in the very nature of things, they'll have 
lost one country without gaining another. This is impossible. So he says in one generation, it's very urgent, he says, to repatriate, send back the people who've come. Because in one generation, if we don't do that, we'll have replicated in England's green and pleasant land what he calls the haunting tragedy of the United States. So he's saying these people can never be British and there are too many here. Now, there are already a million Commonwealth migrants in Britain when he gives the speech, so it's, it's a bit too late. But he's, he's right in this sense, that the fact that two million uh, Commonwealth migrants to Britain over that sort of 40-year period had two million children. The two million children born here ended the debate he was, he was, trying, he was trying to have. You had a, a slogan of send them back. And people who were born here had a different view from their parents. Their parents would say, I think, felt a visceral fear about that speech. Maybe you keep a suitcase packed. Their children didn't feel, maybe you keep a suitcase packed, because they felt there's nowhere to send us back to. Lady Henry, the comedian, uh, had a very good um, joke about that. He said, Enoch Powell's offering people £1,000 to go home, but it's only 50p on the bus to Dudley. <laughs> and that's not, that's not a fearful joke about I might be sent home. That's a, that's a claim to the standing that if Enoch Powell doesn't understand that Lenny Henry's from Dudley, then he's, he's able to stand up for that. So that did change who was British. So I think in that 50-year period, um, and uh, you know, Dan's very right, that the, you know, we asked the question, how do migrants become us? But what's interesting about the people on the, on the Windrush, a third of them have served in the RAF. They know they're British. They've had it drummed into them in the classrooms. They arrive in a Britain that doesn't know that they're British, and it takes 10, 20, 30, 40 years for them and their children to win the argument that of their identity that they arrived with is now shared by, um, by, 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 by everybody else. That why, why, does, why does Britain not know of the Britishness of people who've been taught they are British by Britain? That, that seems to be the argument that was won um, in, the last, in, in those 50 years, and Diane and being elected to Parliament, you know, there hadn't been any black or Asian MPs since the 1920s at that point. So in this period, you're saying the institutions definitely belong to us. We are, we are all British. The who, who's in the club argument is over at one level. But then these other arguments, the second set of questions, do we have shared values? What is our common citizenship? That's much more difficult. Are there British values? Who decided? Like What we then say about the content, that's much more difficult. And I think we have to go on having that, having that conversation. The Shimmy Beacon case is very interesting, difficult um, one in many ways. I think, yeah, I agree with Diane. I mean, Sajid Javid, I think, has made a popular decision mm-hmm. and a wrong decision mm-hmm. that will be overturned by, mm-hmm. by the courts. Mm-hmm. In some ways, one of the reasons this is popular um, is also because, in a way, the act of going to ISIS and then not regretting it, it's sort of metaphorically, symbolically, it feels like someone has sort of renounced their British identity, has you know, given up the values of, of, of the shared citizenship they hold. I mean, you know, she was a child, that's a complicating factor. And in a way, I think it is a betrayal of the values of our common citizenship to do that and not regret it. To me, it's exactly the same kind of betrayal as the um, white racist gang that stabbed Stephen Lawrence when he was looking for a bus. You can't, you know, that, that was about, you know, you shouldn't be on this street looking for a bus because you don't belong here. It's an absolute betrayal of British, the values of citizenship, I think. But we don't then say that racist gang aren't British or aren't English. We say, actually, the values that they do not hold are the necessary values we all need to hold. So I think, I think there is a problem in the implication that, uh, you know, that, that your citizenship is conditional. I'm, I'm Irish, according to the Irish government. I didn't know about that. I haven't asked that because my mother was born in Ireland. So, yeah, I'll, I'll be in trouble if I don't keep my nose clean. And that seems, that seems the wrong thing. So uh, I think... I think 
It's a unique factor, actually, about Britain among European countries that, that the minority groups in Britain have a greater claim to the national identity than the majority group. That is not the case in France, Belgium and Germany. And some of these are colonial countries as well. So that's quite an interesting, uh, interesting point as to why that happens. It's because you've had to argue for it, you've had to fight for it, you've had to insist on it, um, I think. But it's also because British was always multinational. It was always plural and it was always fuzzy. It actually had quite a lot of space in it. It already had the Scottish, the Welsh and the Northern Irish in it. So in a way, Commonwealth migrants could find a different route to Britishness. We haven't done as much work with the English identity, which I think is happening, but the English identity is going to have to be as inclusive as the British identity has become. And we're going to have to win that argument, I think, in this generation. Great. Thank you very much. And now, Alita. Hi. So, um, I'll make two points. One is, um, uh, some of these statements were about British values. And my understanding is, to a large extent, the values of a country, firstly, it is very complicated, as all speakers before me have already said. There is no specific, this is it. But to some extent, it is reflected in the laws of the country. But what happens is, as the society changes and evolves, values change, and the laws catch up. And I just want to make an example. So in 1965, the first Race Relations Act was implemented, and that was the result of a lot of activism on the part of the population, some of it, and lobbying, and so on. And since, but uh, what it did was it outlawed uh, discrimination in public spaces on the basis of race, color, national origin, um, ethnic origin, but it was very limited in scope. It was criticized, and then since then, there have been amendments to that law in 68, in 76, in 2000, and then the final one in 2010. Now, each law, what it did was it increased the scope of uh, this anti-discrimination law, not just discrim uh, discrimination in public spaces, but also in the housing and employment sector, which were areas of very high levels of uh, uh, racism. And finally, the Equality Act of 2010 basically has brought in all the different discrimination laws under one umbrella, and now the protected categories are age, disability, gender reassignment, sexual orientation, sex, ethnic origin, nationality, religion and religious belief, dis disability, if I've said, marriage and partnership status. So the question is, that is how laws evolve and the values evolve. So I think it is for all of us to decide what these values are and they will over time evolve. And the second point I wanted to make was about this um, aspect of Britishness. So first is referring to the census 2011 question on British identity. So there was a question on what is your national identity in the census, and that is the one that was asked here in the poll. So I cheated. I actually did look at the census data. And the answer to that question, the one with all the different ethnic groups, was that um, the group which chose uh, British identity, either by itself or with another national identity, uh, the highest was Asian or Asian British. 60% of them chose that. That was followed by black African Caribbean or black British group where 50% chose that. And the group which is often referred to as white British, the white UK group, 25% chose that because 68% of them chose an English identity. 
the point is, I don't know what it says. <laughs> that is it. So does it mean that suddenly the majority of the population doesn't think that they are British, that they are all anti-British? I don't know. So that's the point, that raising these questions, there's an underlying assumption that goes around. And I have done research on the issue of identity and Britishness with my colleague here, Lucinda Platt. And the underlying assumption is that if you are an ethnic or religious minority, then you have to constantly prove your Britishness. These questions are asked with that implicit assumption that are you British enough? And I, uh, a large survey that Ilka mentioned, I work for Understanding Society, uh, we had a question where we asked people to rate on a scale of 0 to 10, um, how important is being British to you? And the answer to that question turned out that ethnic minorities were more likely to choose a higher score than white British or white majority people. But it was more complicated than that. People who are highly more highly educated were uh, likely to choose a lower score. People li living in London were less likely to choose a British, a higher Britishness score. Um, I think uh, older people were likely to choose a higher score. The question is, identity is very complicated. It develops. It is multidimensional. People have various competing identities. And so bring it, bringing the whole conversation down to are you British or not, and particularly questioning people of color and religious minorities is not very useful. Thanks. <clears throat> Thank you very much. <laughs> now we have about 10 minutes for the panel, and then I would like to open up the discussion to the audience. And my first question is whether any one of you four want to comment on any of the other people first before I delve into some other questions. No, I think you should go. go. <laughs> <laughs> I think what all of you kind of um, hinted on is the idea, the, the, the complexity of this, uh, what it means to be British or what that category even means. And I was wondering if it's so fuzzy, do we actually need this category? Do we need this label, Britishness? Or do we want to go away from this very fixed categories and open it up to something which I don't know what it might be, but... <laughs> I, I think we need it, um, and I think we need it in a different way to the other identities. In a liberal democratic society, you're actually trying to protect the, the value that you can choose the importance of the identities you want. You might identify strongly with your faith or not strongly with your ethnicity or not strongly with your football club, um, you know, um, other projects that you've got. And that's, in a free society, you get to choose. And in societies that sort of collapse into a civil war sometimes, or in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, it might be harder to say, actually, I'm not going to fit into your box. But to get that to work, actually, the common citizenship identity, um, which in this case is, is what the British identity is doing, there have to be some boundaries around it. They count as well as you do. If you don't think British society can have Muslims in it, then we've actually got to have an argument with you about that if you think it's um, only for people with your set of views about this. So the citizenship identity you've got to decide the boundaries of in order, in a way, to have the freedom to pick and mix. It becomes more complicated with British identity if we then recognise publicly Scottish, Welsh, Northern Irish, 
English, we haven't really done it, institutions, then again we need to say actually we've got to argue about that one and agree on it. We had the debate about race um, and England, for example, through who got picked for the football team. Black players were good enough to play. Did they play? And then did people send them bullets in the post or shout racist abuse on the terrorists or did we get beyond that? It's important because that's a public institution really that you know if you want to campaign for an all-white English football team then go ahead and have the campaign and let's find out if English people agree with you and they won't and that will settle it. So some of the identities that are public and shared we've got to decide on together where are the boundaries, who's in and who's out. So that's why these ones have to be argued over to some extent. I'll just add two points really to that, uh, which is uh, about democracy and uh, about the welfare state and sharing wealth. So we're asked to pay a significant part of our income in tax to help not people in poor parts of the world, but fellow citizens. And in order for people to kind of be on board with that kind of sacrifice of their income, they have to feel some kind of bond. I mean, it helps certainly for them to feel a kind of bond with their fellow citizens. That's one function really of, of a shared national identity. The other would be democracy. So if, for example, I mean, the, in the U.S. case, if you think about uh, the Democrats and Republicans, I mean, if the Republicans win the election, will Democratic voters uh, be okay with that and accept the result and vice versa? Or if, if in this country, you know, remain or, or, or leave uh, wins, will the Remainers accept that? You know, these sorts of, in order to accept the other side taking power, you have to be willing to say, okay, I didn't get my way, we lost, but I accept the result because we're in this together. So there, there, there's quite a few functions, I think, that... Uh, national identity and citizenship um, uh, fulfill, which I think are very important for democracy and, and for the economy. Yeah. Thank you. Well, um, <clears throat> being British is a, is a legal category. I don't see how you can not have um, uh, a notion of Britishness. It's a clear legal category. In case anyone wants to ask me, I think I'm British. You don't get more British than being a British Member of Parliament. Um, <laughs> and um, that, to me, is an opening, sh it's opening shut, really. The, the, the difficulty arises when people make assumptions that you are not British based on your skin colour. That's what was problematic about the whole Windrush thing. The government's just been turned over in court because it tried to bring in um, new housing regulations, which, in, which almost facilitated landlords saying, you, you're not white, you're not British, therefore I have to have all these checks. So the problem isn't about having a category of Britishness. The problem is people still in 2019, several hundred years after the first black or brown people came to this country, making an assumption about you, about you not being British based on skin colour. I remember when I was a brand new MP, it was first, first Christmas when I was an MP, and I was standing in the queue in the tea room uh, uh, behind a, another MP, he was actually a Labour MP. So of course it was Christmas and it was a conversation on Gambit. I said, oh, what are you doing for Christmas? He said, oh, I'm going, you know, home, whatever. And then he turned to me and said, do you celebrate Christmas in Jamaica? <laughs> um, it's that sort of nonsense that we have to challenge. The only other thing I would say, I don't share Sundar's thing about, oh, the English, the poor English, they don't have an identity. It's perhaps because I'm older than anyone else on the panel, but really and truly, when I was at primary school, we did English country dancing. We learned English sea shanties. I'm not conscious of this lack of an assertion of an English identity. I guess a very small point that I would like to make is, again, as 
you know, looking at research and identity, it is the result of your experiences, the context where you are, what is happening to you, and so on. And so if you're going to question whether people think they are British or not, we need to think why some people do and some people don't. So in some other research, and other people have also seen, one in 10 ethnic minorities report they have experienced racial and ethnic harassment over the last one year. That is a large enough number. And then if this becomes a repeated experience, how British would you feel? Would you, if you're constantly reminded as being someone else? So I guess my point would be we need to question that as well. Yeah. I, I also just, because you talked about the historical context and well and the times in which we are now, I was also wondering whether anyone, or what we know maybe already about the new waves of migrants coming here, especially from the EU, and how they fit into this category of Britishness. And I mean, I'm part of the more than three million, those people. How do we fit into British society and in the way we, the people who would like to stay? It's, I mean, it's a very, it's a very interesting question. I mean, one group, one group who were of migrants earlier who were unlikely to take up citizenship and unlikely then to identify as British were actually Irish migrants um, to Britain, partly because you didn't need British citizenship to have... My mother never became British, but she voted in every general election because Britain hadn't quite, you know, totally got the idea that Ireland had become an independent <laughs> country up to, up to some point, and, and so on. And then the Irish felt a different... They didn't have that positive, we're part of this engagement that Commonwealth migrants sort of had. There's a more antagonistic um, relationship. European nationals also did not tend to take up British citizenship or identify as British because they said, you joined the European Union, we are European citizens, we've come as citizen mobility, you're calling it immigration, and the British were calling it immigration, and they hadn't realised that. And now we have this extremely large group of people who are being offered settled status. You'll have permanent residence. It's very like citizenship. You won't have the right to vote in our elections, but do stay and make your lives here. And we haven't even had the conversation, shouldn't we be saying, by the way, up to you, if you want to become a citizen as well, we'd really encourage that. That's actually a positive thing we'd like to do as part of this process. We're actually going to encourage, and people, people will want the permanent status, and they, you know, a lot of people will get a British passport because they're not sure what the Home Office will do with settled status in five or ten years, so it might not be the most sort of emotionally positive reason for joining. We're not actually making the offer and actually, it's incredibly um, expensive, um, as we know. But also, if you get this settled status, which is permanent status in Britain, the rules of citizenship are, that's great, you've done that. If you wait another year, you can apply again and pay another fee. So we haven't thought, actually, if three million people are going to make their lives here, bring their children up uh, to be British, we should actually be opening the door and saying, you know, whatever your feelings are about that referendum, the, you, know, the door, you know, the door's open, we want that welcome message. So I think we've really failed to sort of send the right message to, to that group in the politics since the referendum. So, Diane, if you are Home Secretary soon, um, what would you be your take on this? Well, I think that um, European nationals living in this country should have the rights they currently have and should have a level of, you know, a level of security. Um, just to say, on the what makes people British and, and the shared cultural identity. One of the things in the Commonwealth um, was a lot of effort was put into getting Commonwealth citizens, whether it was Ghana, whether it was Jamaica, whether it was India, to absorb 
British culture. And, and I was surprised a lot of people in the audience. If you ever find yourself in an old people's home and you find some elderly West Indian person and you ask them, can you recite me a poem? They will recite you Keats, Shelley, because they learnt that poetry at school and they haven't forgotten it. People forget how much effort in the British Empire was put into imbuing people with a British cultural understanding. That actually is a good way into my next question because we also wanted to talk about what def who defines being British. And so what is the role of education and schooling? How can a British identity be taught in school um, in the way that Ofsted, for example, demands that? What, how do we do that? I think this one, I mean, again, I won't say much on this other than I don't, because I'm not such a fan of the sort of state-directed hymn sheet version of national identity. I, I, I'm more in favor of presenting a variety of different perspectives and allowing the students to sort of gravitate towards what is attractive to them rather than saying this is the way to view history and it's, it's either all a celebration or, or it's all a shame. I think there should be kind of, you should present both sides and then let the students sort of, again, forge their own version of the national identity. That would be my prefer preference. We, uh, we put too much emphasis on, on schools. We should use schools um, for values and education. You're bringing up young people. You've got a captive audience. You'll never have them again. So, you know, use it, <laughs> use it, use it while you can. But actually, the, the reason we put too much emphasis on is if you actually, you know, look at all of the data of who's got a sort of inclusive um, version of who we are and who we should be that crosses ethnicities and faiths, then, you know, the younger you are, and the more diverse the place you live, you'll have that, you'll have that version. And the older you are, so the experience of being in the mixed classroom, we should reinforce it, but you know, children learn about multiple faiths, you know, to, to, you know, so schools have done their job well. And when we were, we were doing research in the West Midlands, uh, talking about change over the last 50 years since that Enoch Powell speech with people of different generations. If we've changed, what's made it change? And people's biggest thing was contacting schools and then contacting workplaces and also laws against discrimination and so on. And that what we've got to do more work on is the parents and the grandparents at the school gate and beyond it, especially in the areas that are less diverse and have less contact. And I think to some extent we think doing sort of values of a multi-ethnic, multi-faith society are a thing for the schools in the most diverse areas. And that's the place where that's already happening through social and personal contact. How you make that story very meaningful to older people in Cornwall and Cumbria and Norfolk and so on, because that, 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 that is actually a much harder challenge where people are much less likely in a way to have social contact with people who are, who are different from them. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that I would say is but there is a story of change, but I also think there's a story of continuity and tradition, and you don't want to just push a change story. Sure. I think you have to have a change story, but also a continuity tradition story, and, and not to sort of say, this, you know, we, can only, we only have to think about Britishness as diversity and change. I think it's got to be a mix. Well, one of the most powerful ways we saw that happen was over the First World War centenary. Lots of people, whether from a majority background or minority background, everyone's surprised to know the armies that fight 100 years ago look more like the Britain of 2018 than the Britain of 1918. Um, and the reason is empire. 
and the reason is decolonisation and so on. But everyone's interested in that story. It does something that Diane was saying, which is that ethnic minorities are very, very keen that people don't think, well, when did you all arrive last Thursday, or was it the Thursday before that? That there's a level of contribution to this society over half a century, over a full century, that isn't known about. And then you've got the traditional audience saying, well, I really wanted to maintain those values and traditions. And you've got the minority audience saying, why aren't we in the textbooks? Because we were in the war. You've actually got a chance to say, well, if we, if we taught children about the real history of this country, maybe we could find common ground on that. That proves, that turns out to be remarkably effective, actually, in bridging some of the things that Eric's worried about bridging. Do do you want to comment on that before I open? Well, just to say, I mean, I think being British is is an equal category, and I think that's, that's open and shut. I think that people should, of course, learn about British literature and British culture at school. I read history, and for better or worse, all the history I did, whether it was O-level, A-level, or my, or my degree in Cambridge, was actually British and European history. However, I think there is some merit in a global world, actually, of people having a broader understanding of history and culture. And in my own family's case, my son, who is as British as you can get, he won't eat a meal without tomato ketchup. Um, I sent him, not entirely willingly, um, to six form in Ghana, and one of the attractions for me was that he got to do the International Baccalaureate, and he had a much broader curriculum, both in terms of the literature he read and the languages he was taught. I think in a global world, of course, um, British culture and British heritage is very important, and I, and I mean that quite seriously, but I also think in a global world, and to be able to engage with um, the world globally, there should be, there should be some broader understanding of literature and culture built into the curricula. All right, we have like um, about 12 and a half minutes for your questions. <laughs> now I give you more. I would like to take three questions at a time. Question Please <laughs> ask questions. Do not have a lengthy comment because we don't have that much time. And maybe we start here and then go over there and then to the, the last person is the and the check thread, if you could um, I'm Lily, and I'm Irish, um, Scottish, mixed race, loads of things. So I'd like to draw attention to um, this who defines it, because when I tick a box on a form, I often tick white Irish, A, to confuse people, but also why shouldn't I? Because I'm both white and black. So I'm asking if Britishness is a multinational in its formation, um, should this statement be defined by those who are often having to defend their Britishness and challenge, by the, challenge this identity by those who consider them to be the most British in this sort of white British idea? Okay. Um, over there? Yep. Do you think the dramatically different ways that um, sort of Scotland and England voted in the referendum reveals something about English identity in particular, considering sort of the racist undertones of the Leave campaign? Okay, thank you. And then last one up there. Thank you. Could the speakers comment, please, on the relevance of religion to this debate, especially as Britain is now regarded as a secular country? Thank you. All right, thank you. So we had three questions. I think the first one uh, was about who defines it and who has the honors to define it. Is this the person who wants to say, I am British and I can be white Irish? 
or is it on the higher the state to define? Then we had a question about um, English identity and how that relates to Scottish identity and the Brexit vote. And the last one was about the relevance of religion in this context. So I don't know. Three very broad questions. Who would like to? (laughs) (laughs) Where do we want to start here? Um... Well, I mean, religion shouldn't have a bearing on your nationality. And because Britain is essentially a secular country, I don't think it's historically had much bearing on your nationality, whereas in France, which is a, for quite some time, a very strongly Catholic country, it might be different. So I don't think religion should have a bearing on the nationality. That's certainly not the British experience. In terms of Scotland versus English and how both um, nations voted in the referendum, you could argue that the Scots have always been, in different ways, more international than the English. Um, the Scots, historically, going right back to Mary Queen and Scots and so on, had quite strong links with France and the rest of Europe, quite separate from the English relationship. And actually, the Scots were amongst the forefront of people that went out to administer the British Empire. So um, maybe the differing votes reflect a little more historic internationalism amongst the Scots. It is notable, and I say this um, from a parliamentary point of view, that Scottish National MPs certainly are arguing that they want more migration to Scotland. They want more migration, which is almost the opposite of what some English politicians want to say. Yeah, I mean, I'll just say on that on the first question about who defines it. I mean, part of what I'm trying to get to is this idea that there isn't that single definition, and that really it's everyone's coming at Britishness with a different lens. If you think of the Union Jack, what it means to a Maud or an Ulster Unionist or a minority uh, Britain is quite different, and yet they're all attaching themselves to that Union Jack, which I think is the, the important thing, not necessarily what you see in it, but the fact you're attaching it to it. So I wouldn't be in favour of any single entity being, you know, defining this thing. In terms of the Scottish-English thing, it is uh, worth adding, however, to what Diane said, that a significant chunk of the Scottish population voted leave. I don't think we want to minimize the fact that, uh, I think it was in the upper 30s, uh, 38% or something, versus in in England, I don't know, maybe it was 55, I'm not sure. So there is a difference, but it's not... 52. Sorry, 52. Well, 52 in Britain. In England, I mean. Sorry, England. Maybe it was a bit higher. But, um, and also, when we, when we, if you look at people who are in favor of Scottish independence and those who oppose Scottish independence, there's no difference in their propensity to vote leave. So I don't think there's anything specifically necessarily in that Scot. There is something in the Scottish nationalism, but it's just to say that people whose sentiment is, is to, to leave the UK are not necessarily more pro-European. And, if, and in terms of attitudes to immigration of the pu- Scottish public, not the, uh, the Scottish political leadership, but the public, it doesn't differ f- um, from that of, or barely differs from that of England. So I don't know really, I mean, I think part of this is about the framing of national identity by political elites to some extent, um, but I'm not sure the differences are quite as pronounced as, as some would have them, have you believe. Anyway. Should we have a I few just, more questions? Uh, oh, I just yes. want to just say something. Uh, 
Um, just that who defines it? I think one of the reasons this gets complicated is identity is very, very personal. So I'll be defining my identity, you'll be defining your identity. And then we're talking about identities we share. You've got both, it's very individual, but also we've got to find some collective boundaries. We've got increasingly diverse diversity. And so if you look at the, uh, <laughs> you look at the census tick boxes, there's more and more options. And if you're mixed race, I'm, I'm mixed race, like the question, you know, at first I think it was called other, you know, <laughs> and then it became sort of mixed. And then you can have a variety of mix, but we've got this problem we have. You can't be, you can't be non-white and Irish in the boxes. They'll never quite have enough boxes for all of the different diversities that you might have. And that's why, as the diversity gets more diverse, you're going to have to invest in the shared identity and let people have the really individualistic ones themselves. So that's why I think the shared identities, uh, the shared identities matter. So people don't notice about Scotland that um, it voted 40% leave in 1975. It was the most Eurosceptic part of Britain. And it voted 40% leave in, uh, in 2016. It was the most Europhile part of Britain, so everyone else had changed, and the Scots had stayed, you know, sort of, sort of quite <laughs> stay in. Um, England does have a culture and a voice and identity, but the United Kingdom is nations and regions, and England isn't, isn't quite there, so it's got a football and a cricket and a rugby team. We haven't worked that out, and people get scared of England. Is it too big? Is it like an elephant? Is it too big and ugly? Can we, can we give it a political, can we give it a political space as well, and we're going to have to, I think, I think, do that. The English didn't realise until devolution that being English and British were two identities, not one. And the Scottish British and the Welsh British have been trying to explain that to the English for sort of many, many decades and years. And then the English are like, oh yeah, that's right. Where, when am I allowed to be English? So I think you've got to get that conversation to happen and see where it see where it goes. It might go, you know, it might just be that people want to celebrate St George's Day, which is great, and then we'll make sure it's inclusive of everybody in England. It might be that people want political institutions that represent England, they might want to do that more locally. We haven't really had a space, you know, political parties have a Scottish and a Welsh manifesto and then a British manifesto. Institutions, you know, you have a Scottish national theatre and a national theatre that's British. You haven't thought about when is there an English dimension as well. Just to say that I'm very happy to celebrate St George's Day. But the truth is that in common political discourse, English is a euphemism for white. And let's not beat around the bush. All right, we have just a few more minutes. Unfortunately, we could discuss a lot more, but there are more interesting events. So we have here on the very top. And in the middle. So, with the glasses, with you first, and then top woman there, and a man here. All right. Great. Very uh, short and precise sure. questions, Thank you. Um, taking uh, as a given that there is value in Britishness as a concept to, to bring folks together, um, coming back to the concept of is this something which should emerge bottom-up or be defined bottom-down? Um, the Sorry, top-down. The my feeling is that as society is fragmenting at the moment and we are uh, defining ourselves more and more as identity in smaller groups and certain of those groups start defining themselves as anti-diversity. Um, I wonder whether in the world that we're moving into right now it becomes incumbent on leadership, either political or societal, to start defining what Britishness is more than historically. I just wonder if that's a, a shared thought amongst the group. Thank you. And then behind you, yeah, there. 
Um, good afternoon. So I'm actually going in the opposite direction with that question because I do research on multicultural individuals. So uh, speaking to comments the panel has made, how do we therefore talk to or create con uh, dialogue in our societies where it is there shouldn't be fear of being ticking multiple boxes and holding multiple identities. And how do those with multiple identities um, not have the freedom to choose and and be who they are and get ex and be accepted, so, so that they don't have to always keep defining and 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 defending who they are? Why is it not allowed? Why is it so hard to be a multiple multi or a multicultural person? Um, and why does one have to be put in one box? Right. And the last question here in the middle. Um, so I research um, feelings of uh, guilt and shame for a country's wrongdoing. And what has surprised me thus far is that everybody considers the British identity to be something of privilege and to be locked out of it as something as bad. But being British to me means kind of having a history of criminalizing and imprisoning people because of their sexuality. Uh, we have food banks. Uh, currently, we have Windrush, and that might produce negative emotions because of my national identity. Because I'm British, I feel guilty and ashamed about my, my country's past. What is the role of these, feeling, these negative experiences of being British, and do they make us better, or do they make us worse? All right, thank you very much. So uh, we had the question about the role of leadership, so a top-down approach, but then the next question was about how can we foster a dialogue that comes more from uh, bottom up? And the last interesting question, and I think that rings really true for someone who comes from Germany, is how do we deal with negative emotions around nationality? Um, okay. okay. Yeah. It's, um, I'll just talk about this approach, whether it's from top down or bottom up. This is a democracy, and the way, as I was talking about, the anti-racism laws have changed more because of activism. And I don't think anybody else should be defining who we are, what the values are. And it, at some point, when you face these other people trying to force you into being someone or putting, having to tick certain boxes, you will have to stand up and say, this is who I am and these are my values. And that is how it has always changed in society. There's, I've never seen any other way of changing it. Yeah. Well, I'm just, again, on that top-down point, I mean, I think it's an interesting, I don't, I would be against this idea of the state sort of intervening to um, propound one singular version of the national identity. That will alienate somebody, uh, depending on how you define it. However, I do agree with you that if there are people who are saying this is, there's only one exclusive way to be British, um, you know, and it's to be white British, for example, then that clearly is something that the government, you know, that, that the government can stand against. Uh, but what I would be opposed to is, for example, the government saying uh, Britain is defined by its diversity, and if you don't agree with that, then, then your version of Britishness is is wrong. I think that's actually something that may feed into some of the alienation that we've seen with populism. I think you have to say. Some people will identify that way. Some people will identify differently. But the key is we're tolerant of these different ways of identifying. What we won't tolerate is attempting to impose one definition on everybody. Um, so, so I'd say that. Just in terms of the guilt and shame, uh, I'll be very quick on that. I think that, uh, again, I think we need to see this in a world historical uh, way. So we have to look at not just what British did or Americans did, or, but, but also look at that in the history of, um, as as 
uh, you know, Guns, Germs, and Steel, which is Jared Diamond's book about, you know, uh, agricultural societies have been taking over and exterminating hunter-gatherer societies. That's part of uh, human history, and that's ugly, absolutely. But I don't think this idea of focusing just on you know, navel-gazing about one's own history as being uniquely shameful is very helpful. I think it's good to learn the lessons, certainly, of the past um, and then to sort of take what's best from them, but then not you don't have to wake up every morning uh, thinking about the, the, the bad things that your society has done in the past. I don't think that's productive, really, in any way. Um, just as I wouldn't sort of wake up every morning and, and worry about some nasty thing I said to some kid in high school. Um, yes, I may be sorry for it at the time, and I have to remember that lesson, but that doesn't mean it has to dominate the way I think about myself. So, yeah. I think... Um I, th I think a test of a confidence of a country is whether it can sort of live with, understand, own, and delve into its own history and understand that in a complex way. I mean, you know, I you know, have the advantage maybe of being sort of British and English and Indian and Irish, so I'm, you know, I can see, you know, we wouldn't be the society we are if we didn't have the history we have, and now we've got to go on with it. I think, in a way, if you want to be proud of William Shakespeare um, and you weren't alive then, then in a way you've also got some responsibility for the society that's created you. So I just, you know, Germany, I think, has done probably more than any other country to have a reckoning with its own history. I think countries find that difficult, and the Federal Republic of Germany did that because of the particular sort of catastrophic nature of, of the history. And, that, you know, countries do well when they can do that, but it's a difficult thing to do, but a confident country does it. A lot of the questions, I think, have been about, and the last one was um, explicitly this, is it difficult and why is it difficult to have multiple identities? I think it's interesting to ask, is it difficult to have multiple identities in this country, in this city, in 2019? And in a way, in this city, it's very easy to have multiple identities compared to this city 30 years ago, this city 50 years ago. It might be a bit tougher in other cities. It might not be. Um, it might feel more fraught now. It might depend on what your background is. Um, if you're a European national or if you're Muslim, you might feel it got more difficult. If you spend too much time on the internet, it feels pretty difficult. But if you actually just go into any classroom or any seminar room, actually people are doing it all the time. And so actually we can do this and we've learned how to do this. And in a way maybe we need to sort of, you know, put the internet back in its box occasionally and, and assert that we, we, that we do know how to do this. And the fragmentation question is very interesting because in a way the top-down thing isn't going to work, but we need the moments to do it. Because there are less shared moments, we really value the ones that we have got. And so, you know, the Olympic Games, I think, were important for that reason. People who don't particularly like the monarchy sort of, you know, think those moments have a potential. So I think let's use the moments but not define how we're going to use them. People have an appetite for things that bring them together because it feels like it doesn't happen very often. Good. Our time is almost up, but I would like to ask Diane whether you want to comment on any of the three questions. Yeah, I mean, for me... Being British is a straightforward legal concept. And I suppose I say that because 30 years as a member of parliament, a lot of my time has been spent dealing with issues around migration and immigration. So I'm very clear in my head that it's a legal reality. However, within the legal reality of being British, you can have 
cultural variations. To talk about the field I'm most familiar, this country have has, has had very distinguished and distinctive British politicians of Welsh origin. I give you Lloyd George. It's also had perhaps less distinguished politicians of Jamaican origin. I give you Diane Abbott. It's possible, <laughs> it's possible within the legal reality of being British to embrace and, and celebrate your, your cultural heritage. What we don't want, though, is people who are British, in fact, being disadvantaged because any arm of the state assumes that their skin colour or their cultural heritage somehow makes them less British, or in the case, we began with her, so let's end with her, Paul Shamima Begum, because of her cultural heritage, Sajid Javid quite wrongly thinks he can just strip her nationality away. All right, thank you so much all for coming and thank you, the audience, for being here. Um, we really appreciate all of your inputs and commitment to come actually on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> I would also like to thank Nihan Albayrak, Amina Amma, Celestine Okoroji, Andrew Stewart, Nila Müllemann, Marie Schlegel, Lucinda Platt, and the LSE event team for helping organizing this great event. And so thank you all for coming. Please give the clickers uh, to the people who collect them at the exits, and have a very nice Saturday.